0: Who Gets to Decide? A liberty based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. All right. Hello, 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 everybody. And welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining me today. Glad you're here. Happy you're listening. Well, you know. Recently, I've been talking about financial stuff. Uh, the markets, uh, you know, were officially in a bear market. What, you know, the financial people had this definition, you know, once the market's down 20%, you're in a bear market. Of course, it's back up 10 from the lows. So what does that mean? Does that mean the bear market's over? Um, you know, this is, this is always, um, this is the difficult thing about uh, being in the markets, right? They don't go... Um, they don't just go straight up and they don't just go straight down. So how do you know whether we're in a good time or a bad time? Well, I think one of the ways, you know, is you just look around. (laughs) I mean, I, I can't remember in my lifetime seeing such craziness and, you know, eventually to me, things just have to snap, but Today what I want to do there's there's two things I want to do. One I want to I want to introduce you to Ray Dalio. I've I've talked about Ray Dalio before, but some listeners may be new and you may not have heard of Ray Dalio. He is the founder of a company called Bridgewater Capital and I want to say they have like 50 billion dollars under management, something like that. Or maybe even more than that. I'm not really sure. I can't remember. And I didn't look it up. So if you want to know what Bridgewater Capital has under management, you can go look it up. It's public information. But Ray Dalio, for the last at least five or six years, has been writing a lot of books, uh, studying a lot of history, and warning people uh, about kind of the debt super cycle. And so he talks a lot about, you know, you have, you have these small cycles and then over time they end, you know, they kind of aggregate and make this one gigantic big cycle. And the whole thing about debt is if you, if you go into debt today, that means you have to, you're taking some of your consumption from the future in order to pay that debt back. So um, he has a a lot to say about that. Uh, There's a, there's a, a clever little, almost like a cartoon that he does on YouTube. I think it's like How an Economy Works or something like that. Uh, you should go watch that. It's pretty good. Uh, but he talks about, inv- he's really talking about investing in this clip that I'm going to play today, or these these clips that I'm going to play. But he's he's specifically talking about a transition from the United States being a global... Uh, leader in the world, a global trade leader, a global financial leader, a global uh, military power leader, just a leader all the way around, and how that's likely to chi- uh, transition to China. And so in some ways, I agree with that. Um, and in other ways, I think China is going to struggle uh, in a way that we did not. Uh, so I want to talk about that. But I um, I think it's a good. Uh, it's it's just him talking, so I'm just gonna have to cut clips here and there. Uh, but he's, uh, he's 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 it's broken up into segments, and I'll chop it up there, and I'll, I'll we'll talk about the areas that I think are really important that he brings up. So without further ado, let's go ahead and start Ray Dalio. The other thing I want to do is I want to mention just a quick a quick uh, 13F filing by a guy named Mike Burry which is, I think, an important signal, and I'll explain why later in the show.
1: The Chinese capital markets is very risky. You could see reverberate through the economy with this shock. Do you believe China and the United States are going to end up in a war? There's a significant risk of it. We are in a trade war, we are in a technology war, we are in a geopolitical influence war, and we are, to some extent, a capital and economic war. We are there. And we are dealing with military issues, particularly as they pertain to Taiwan. We're close. If we go to a military war, it'll almost certainly be the Taiwan issue. So that could be called containment. I think we want to contain China.
0: I don't know why in America we use this language around war so frivolously. Not that these these things that he's talking about are frivolous, you know, technology war, information war, financial war. Um, but the, just the use of war is really, it's, I don't know, I just don't like it. Um, the reality, he talks about something later in the show about how uh, and I don't think I, I don't think I clipped this out, but he talks about how under Woodrow Wilson, um, he felt like the, the, the relationship between governments should be very similar as the relationship exists in the United States between individuals. In other words, we should just get along. We should trade with one another and get along and, and so on and so forth. Now, it's interesting that, Ultimately, he didn't—he didn't really believe that, I guess, because he got us into World War One, and uh, but apparently that's one of the reasons he created the League of Nations and so on and so forth. But I think the the bigger thing here is—is this this posture of war with China, and you know it just doesn't have to be that way. And I say that because what what you really have in the United States is you have. Uh, the government of the United States and some financial and, and very uh, powerful people are clinging, are trying to cling to power. In other words, they're, they're not okay with just freely trading with China or being friendly with China because they feel threatened by China. And this is, I think, fundamentally, this is uh, this exists because uh, we have a, we don't have a a culture of freedom, at least not at the government level. We have a culture of control and information and dominance, and we, we see uh, uh, United States interest in all kinds of nooks and crannies around the world. Uh, you'll hear Ray Dalio here talking a little while about how a country is mostly focused on its internal problems. That's typical, uh, and that's, uh, that's also true of the United States. But we also focus a lot on countries and stuff that's happening outside our borders. And this is part of that dominance issue. And I think that's where this culture of war, this language of war really comes from.
1: Their concerns are mostly the domestic concerns. How do they deal with the demographics issue? How do they deal with um, their own domestic issues? You know, when you run a country, the major issues are the internal issues. How do you make sure you deal with corruption? How do you deal with all the issues that they face? Poverty in the east and the western part of China. Environmental issues. The property bubble that's bursting. The COVID issue. Let's remember that this is a socialist capitalist economy. Everything is not a free market society. Some
0: people in this country relish the idea that China is a communist capitalist type of arrangement. In fact, they think that's one of the reasons China has had so much success is they think, oh, well, we can, if we need a dam, we can just forcibly move all these people out of this 5,000 acres or whatever and, and flood this entire valley. And, you know, it's easy, right? Because you could just point a gun at somebody and tell them to hit the road. But this this also has its its fraught with uh, with landmines with with problems because what we know about centrally planned economies is that they 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 have a lot of they make a lot of mistakes they don't deploy capital uh, quite as efficiently as we do here in the West and a lot of it has to do with uh, politics and things like that Uh, but you know capital is not efficiently allocated via the political system. It's officially allocated through capital markets. And China's capital markets are somewhat closed. Uh, they're much more open today than they used to be, but you'll hear Ray Dalio talk about how open they are here in a minute. And so what I the whole point of having this episode is to let you know that Serious things can go wrong in China, and those serious things can bleed over here into the United States and cause a huge problem. Now, is that is that going to happen? I have no idea, but the, risk, the risks are growing. Um, I think he talks a little bit about their uh, property market over there. They have entire cities uh, that were built, and there's nobody living in them. They have huge fraud happening with... Uh, homes that people are buying they're paying up front uh, and then the contractors are walking off with the money and the banks are having all kinds of problems anyway these these problems can reverberate and land here in the united states and harm your investments so that's the whole point of this episode today
1: I've seen China's per capita incomes increase by 25 times, life expectancy increase by an average of 10 years, and the average number of years of education increase by about 80%. I saw capitalism develop and flourish, and the capital markets develop and open up. I saw how the Chinese stock and bond markets became the second largest in the world. I saw up close how these things happened. I also saw how China became much more welcoming to foreign investors. For example, while in 2015, only 1% of the markets in China were accessible to foreign investors, now over 60% are available to them.
0: Ray Dalio is talking here about how fast China grew and their standard of living changed. I mean, we're talking about a very rapid growth, okay? Really, in about 50 years... China grew as much or more than the United States did between, let's say, 1875 and the year 2000. You know, a third of the time, and they grew as much or more. And a lot of this, you know, when you're starting from subsistence level, which is what they were starting from in China, and then you you have communism, basically, um, you can build a lot of infrastructure. I mean, and they're very productive, hardworking people. There were massive, massive numbers of people that moved off of farms and into cities. I mean, there's just, just tremendous amount of change has happened in China over the last 50 years. But this doesn't mean that China is not going to have some problems. They're, they've got all kinds of problems. They got entire cities full of high rise apartment buildings that nobody lives in. They got scandals with companies building uh, home homes of various types, uh, where they paid the the clients paid up front for the homes, and then the builder started the homes, but then ran off with the money. And this is starting to bleed into the banking system. They have massive massive problems in China, and some of this is probably going to spill over into the United States. So this is kind of kind of a warning about the risks upcoming.
1: They are the power of the reserve currency and the power of the financial markets in the financial sector. These powers traditionally lag other powers, but inevitably catch up. In studying history, I saw that all leading trading empires over the last 500 years had the world's reserve currency and the world's financial centers. During the 1600s and the 1700s, The Dutch Gilder became the world's reserve currency and Amsterdam became the world's financial center after what we now call Holland became the world's largest trading country. This kind
0: of reminds me of the argument about consumption is you know 80% of the economy or whatever as if you could just consume and never produce anything. The the key to what Ray Dalio is talking about here is production. When people become very productive, and make a lot of things that the rest of the world wants, and then trades, you know, the excess of that to other countries around the world. You become wealthy, and your currency becomes demanded by other countries. So there's a little bit of oversimplification here by Ray Dalio. I mean, you don't, you don't just go create the world, you know, a reserve currency, and then uh, dominate trade and and then dominate the financial markets. That, that's not how you become productive. First, you you sell, you make things that other, or you grow things that other people want around the world, and you know then the financial markets, and your reserve currency status is created after that. In fact, the reserve currency status is created because of um, governments and what governments do to to kind of capture. And push their weight around inside of those financial markets so it's a little bit chicken-of-the-egg but uh, most everybody knows that you have to produce something first and then you can go spend it's not the other way around you can't spend and then go produce you have to produce first and then go spend and this is what we have backwards in the United States It's one of
1: the reasons we're getting poorer and poorer all the time in the 1700s and the 1800s the British pound became the world's reserve currency and London became the world's financial center. That was after the British empire became the world's largest trading country.
0: Yeah. Again, you know, uh, great Britain had a little bit more than that going on. They had uh, colonialization and they were scouring the world, you know, for resources and then developing those resources. Now, one of the things they did that I thought was good in their system is they did, leave culture and learnings with countries where they did this, like in India. Today in India, they still have afternoon tea, for example. And in many other places, their legal system was supplanted uh, in those countries. So the British did things a little bit differently. Um, Whereas like, I mean, just to contrast that with like our military intervention, we're not leaving anything good in some of these countries except big old craters in the ground and a bunch of dead people and uh, destroyed lives and economy. So I think the way he's going to talk about it in a second, how it transfers to the United States. But I think the way we've done it is altogether much worse than the way uh, Great Britain uh, dominated the world um, with their currency, uh, their trade, their financial markets.
1: And in the 20th century up until now, the United States dollar became the world's reserve currency and New York became the world's financial center after the U.S. became the world's largest trading country. China is now the world's largest trading country.
0: So there it is. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but right at the end, he said China has become the largest trading country. So notice that China does not have the reserve currency. It does not have the world's financial markets, at least not yet, but it has, it leads the world in trade. Well, that's because China is a very productive country. Their people are working, working, working to produce goods and services, goods primarily that they export all around the world. And this is what's making China rich. Not the fact that they have the reserve currency and can export their inflation Uh, you know, unknowingly to other citizens of other countries around the world, like we're doing. So I think that's an important lesson there. And I think the, uh, I've said this before on the program, but I think the only way for us to get back is to embrace our culture of individual liberty, freedom, property, unleash the creative energy that Americans have for entrepreneurship, for ideas, for bringing those ideas into reality. Uh, That is the way you beat China. You don't beat China by threatening with military action or building more ships so you can patrol the seas or, you know, whatever, you know, using financial repression against them. That's not how you beat China. The way you beat China is you become productive again. You unleash the power of the American individual and entrepreneurship, freedom, liberty, property, all of those things produce wealth.
1: I believe China is now evolving into that role. Even though China's shares of world trade and world GDP are comparable to the United States' share, the RMB is less than 2% of global reserves, world trade invoicing, and cross-border lending. In contrast, the US dollar accounts for over 50% of global reserves and trade invoicing, and is around 60% of cross-border lending. I expect that to change as China moves to internationalize the RMB and open up its capital account.
0: I expect it to change as well, but I don't think uh, investors, in a large way, are going to flock to China to trust their capital. Now I, I know they have Hong Kong, uh, but uh, you'll hear Ray Dalio here talk a little bit in a second, and he's already mentioned it once. Capital controls. You know, as long as as long as you have fiat currency, and you've got uh, legal tender laws in various places, and and governments have the control that they have over financial markets, you've you've also got the potential for capital controls. And these capital controls are basically really bad for investment. This is where they confiscate your wealth, things like that. Think of what happened in Venezuela. You know, oil companies, entire oil companies' operations down there were just nationalized by Venezuela. And so, to the extent that that's possible, uh, and I believe it's more so possible in a in a uh, communist country than in a capitalistic country like the United States, the the risk is going to kind of scare away capital. And I know Hong Kong is very free place, and but they're still in in China's shadow, and China could still uh, still has a, a tremendous influence over Hong Kong.
1: So I believe that this is a very special moment, because simultaneously there will be the confluence of the rapid development of the Chinese capital markets, the opening up of these markets to foreign investors, the relative attractiveness of them and the underweightedness of global investors in them. And this is happening when the fundamentals are undermining the U.S. dollars. I believe that these developments are likely to lead to capital and knowledge inflows into China. And that will benefit the Chinese capital markets and more broadly benefit foreign investors and Chinese investors, too.
0: So Ray Dalio makes a really good case for what he's talking about here. I mean, there's no doubt that if we, the United States, continue the way we're going and running these deficits and financing it on the backs of you know, citizens from all over the globe. Yeah, I mean, I think more capital will definitely flow into China. But we have the power to really stop that. Uh, we have the power to, you know, run a balanced checkbook and attract capital and unleash the power of the entrepreneur. We have all that innovation pin up. That, that's That's in our culture. That's in our DNA. China does not have that. China has a culture of copying us, and so it's really hard to lead. Like, if we went away somehow, uh, who's China going to copy? I mean, I guess, you know, they just don't. They just don't have – in, in, in many cases, they do what the government wants them to do, not what uh, somebody innovates. And this is just a fundamental difference between the two countries. And the risk for the U.S. is that we try to become too much like China – instead of going back to our roots and embracing who we are as a people and in our in our culture our history, I mean look at all the 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 wonderful I mean the, the, the world was just changed by the United States I mean in some ways bad but in, in other way in many many ways good all the all the products and things that were developed here all the agricultural advances I mean you just don't even realize that like in 19- 20 or something like that. We were 80% agrarian society. And by the time World War II was over, we were like less than 10% or something. We just had a huge increase in productivity. And, you know, this, this is what we need to get back to, but it doesn't come from moving money around or from printing currency and, and, you know, forcing other countries to hold that currency in reserve. Um, you know it doesn't come from that it comes from innovation productivity uh... manufacturing uh, producing uh... having productive labor force things like that
1: all individuals companies and governments at the end of the day have to earn more than they spend and they have to have a solid balance sheet of assets which are greater than liabilities Those who have those things are in good shape and those who don't are in bad shape. That's true whether or not you print your currency or not. So what that means is you have to have either be able to be more productive, because we're running deficits in these regards. And now we're funding with debt which we're printing. So you have to raise your incomes or you have to cut your expenditures. We're lucky to have the exorbitant privilege of the reserve currency, which allows us to do that. But we're testing the limits of that.
0: Yeah, that's a very polite and non-threatening way to say it. Uh, I think a more accurate way to say it is, yeah, we're stealing from the rest of the world. We're stealing their productivity and not forcing them really, but um, gently persuading them to hold our currency in reserve status so that they can trade in dollars. And that is, uh, that is a risky and precarious thing for these countries that are around the world. They are dangerously tied to the U.S. dollar, and we are trashing the dollar. Every day that goes by, every month that goes by, every quarter that goes by, it, it gets worse and worse. And I think we're at a, a, a place where you're going to start seeing the dollar go down. It's been going up for a while, but you're going to see it start going down and... Um, Just watch interest rates and watch the value of the dollar.
1: Those are going to be the key metrics. Any country, including the United States, can establish capital controls. And there's a risk to that country. But the degree of capital controls as an investor who brings international money in and out of there because of the links that they've created in Hong Kong for Hong Kong markets and so on. I can do that. So it's not an impediment. As a professional investor who's doing this, I can guarantee you, it's not an impediment. And so in making those choices. Now, I recognize that at any time that could be closed and you might have issues and so on.
0: So here's where he's talking about capital controls. And he's telling you right now he can move money in and out of Hong Kong. Not a problem. But he's saying, look, that could change. And that creates risk. Uh, Or there's a risk there. It doesn't create a risk. The risk is there. And so, you know, this is uh, this is this is kind of where the nature of communism could come into play. Now, look, the Chinese are very smart. They know that that would harm them, but at the same time, if they became threatened in a way that they you know, they just felt like they had to do that, I mean, they can just do that. There is no private property. there's nobody, there's no rule of law stopping them from doing that. there's there's literally nothing. It's just somebody wakes up one day and says shut it down we're not we're not we're not letting investors take their money out of the country oh and by the way they're doing that right now with their citizens many of their citizens have money in these banks that were defrauded by these construction companies these development companies and they're not allowing them to get their money out of the banks Uh, there's massive protests going on right now in fact they had tanks rolling down their streets To try to keep the order because people were getting upset, uh, you know, as you might expect, (laughs) because they couldn't get their money out of the bank.
1: There are five types of conflicts that exist with the rising power, challenging an existing power. They are, and we call them wars, there's a trade war, there's a technology war, there is a geopolitical war, there is a capital war, and then there is a military, let's call it competition, that conceivably be into a military war. They're all connected, and because of the threats of those, we are having decouplization taking place, which means the building of sort of self-sufficiency. So that is going to be with us for a long time, and how those conflicts are handled will matter a lot.
0: So here we have that language of war again, which I don't really like. But if you just think about, if, if a country is, is busy making stuff, okay... And, and, and you have an excess of it. So you have enough to trade away to somebody else that wants to buy it. Why is all this other stuff important? You know, and, and oh, and, and, if you had a, a hard currency, like a gold, okay. Why is all this other stuff important? Geopolitical, whatever, war and technology war. I mean, your technology is going to come from, from that, that manufacturing base or that, Uh, innovation base, right? Or, or, you know, am I to believe that if we had a massively productive economy and we had open trade with countries around the world, that we would have to be concerned somehow of somebody invading us or somebody not liking us or somebody dropping a bomb on us? See, I just don't believe that. I just don't believe that. I think if you you were uh, focused on if you were the example, okay, the the quote-unquote shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan used to talk about. And what he was talking about is not a not an example like a financial power example, but an example of a place where people are free and people can produce and people own property and 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 you know, that that th- those are the most productive people in the world. One of the reasons we're not productive is because we we became too focused on funny money, and moving money around. And there's nothing productive about moving money around. In fact, all that money chases productive activity. That's all it does. Well, there's nothing stopping the United States from being that productive activity. So this is kind of where I take issue a little bit with Ray Dalio. Now look, he's really, really smart, and he's dealing kind of with what is. And I'm trying to persuade people that this is where we need to be. We don't need to deal with what, what is. We need to change internally. We need to, we need to embrace freedom. We need to embrace property. Uh, we need to embrace innovation. And, um, and, and all that other stuff will fall into place.
1: It is technologically a fact that the more data you have and the more artificial intelligence is applied to that data, the better you can understand and manage things. So from a competitive point of view, I think it's a desirable thing to have the kind of massive collection of data. I've heard different numbers, eight times as much data per person and so on.
0: This is really where I take issue with people in our country. They, they. This is where they kind of are jealous about the Chinese system. Look at all the data they have. They don't have all these, you know, Uh, aggravating privacy laws and they don't have, you know, the government can just take data from the citizens and use it to uh, make great decisions. The problem with this thinking though is it doesn't traditionally work. I mean, if, if it worked so well, then why do you have entire cities? And I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of large cities in China completely built, but void of people. How does that happen? If you have all this perfect data and you can just do whatever you want, how does that actually happen? How does it happen that um, that developers can defraud people out of uh, life savings for their homes and then turn around and you can't get the money out of the bank? This is, this is communism, okay? This is the way central planning works. Or it's more accurate to say doesn't work.
1: Americans have gotten used to, comfortably used to, having their way and deciding, okay, that's fair, that's not fair, and so on. As an extension of the power that we had, as a result of, you know, in 1945, we created a new world order, the American world order, and we had power, economic and military power. And so we really got to judge others and determine what was fair. I think that well, we're not going to be able to resolve that. And if we keep looking at it that way, we may not get what we want want I think we have to look at it realistically
0: this is an interesting insight because I think he's absolutely right because we've been able to kind of push our weight around in the world we've gotten really kind of high and mighty about how we judge cultures in other countries oh that's not right no that's not fair and you know that those people shouldn't be doing that and then we justify It'd be like,, uh, let's say my neighbors were having uh, you know an argument, my cup, the neighbors next door, and they're married, okay? and I and I you know, I hear them arguing, and I think, well, I better go over there and and help them get that straightened out. I mean, why would I think that I should be able to go over there and do that? But this is the way we view the rest of the world. we We see we're like busybodies, global busybodies. We're always in other people's business. We think we have the right to tell them what they can and can't do in their own countries. And this is just not necessary uh, to operate in the world. You can operate just fine around the globe trading and doing whatever. And you don't have to be these these busybodies, okay? You don't have to go around pointing your finger at countries and tell them they, they can't do this and they can't do that. I mean, tragic things happen all the time all over the world. There's, we can't fix all of it
1: there were 16 times where a rising power challenged an existing power in 12 of those times they had military wars that would be a disaster and in four of those times they didn't if we can look at those times that they didn't and the need for overwhelming and recognize and remember history remember how terrible those are and how good win-win relationships are and we can evolve without those kinds of things, which I think is most likely. It's the most sensible thing to do. Then we will both evolve. We'll evolve, and we'll evolve together. Probably with arguments, but it'll be okay.
0: This is why I like the gold standard. I know people make fun of the gold standard, and they don't think it's possible anymore. But if you just got busy producing things that people wanted, okay, and you sold them for gold, you just said, "You can buy as much of you want, much of it as you want. Just pay me in gold." Within 20 years, we'd be the richest nation in the world. We'd never look back. We, wouldn't, we could cut our military budget down to nothing. We wouldn't have to worry about anything. I mean, it would just be, it's just so simple, okay? But because we, we want to do it the easy way, the quote-unquote easy way, we want to be able to print money, we want to be able to have legal tender laws, the, the power centers, the, the politicians need to be able to control everything. This is, this is what causes all these problems. And, you know, the likelihood of us having a smooth transition of financial power like there was between Great Britain and the United States is very, very slim, I would say, between China and the United States. So, you know, we need to get our focus kind of inwardly focused, like he mentioned, and, and solve our problems here. And hopefully we can solve them in a way that deals with this uh, larger issue of political authority and how that uh, steals our standard of living, steals our productivity, creates conflict between us and other countries where we could trade and be prosperous. I mean, the political authority piece is just a—it's just a mess. All right, I'm going to switch gears and move over to Mike Burry real quick. Mike Burry is an investor. Uh, He has to file something called a 13F because he manages, uh, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And this 13F filing was very interesting because he has liquidated all his stocks except for one. (laughs) And uh, this guy's a genius. And I think it's, uh, I think it's an important uh, thing to pay attention to. All right, something else that we were watching today: the 13F filings um, from Monday. A lot of interesting ones here. A lot of individual ones. I had my on Michael Burry slashing his U.S. stock portfolio. He doesn't own any U.S. stocks anymore, except for one, and that company is called Geo Group. It is a private prison operator, and it was at the top of our uh, top trending ticker list. Um, And it's a very small company. It was his only long stock holding as of June 30th. Okay, if you saw the movie The Big Short, Mike Burry was the eccentric investor that used to be a doctor that turned into uh, like a hedge fund manager, and he used to play the drums in his office. And of course, he was a horrible drummer, but he would he was like on the autistic scale or something. I don't know. He's on the spectrum and, but he's just a genius. I mean, he pours over reports and reads things that nobody wants to read. And, um, anyway, he was that character in the big short. And if you'll recall, he bought millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, uh, collateral debt obligations or, uh, CDSs. um, and these CDSs, of course, paid off big when all these uh, mortgage-backed securities failed during the financial crisis. And so, you know, Mike Burry, for years, I mean, for years after 2008, only invested in things like water projects and stuff like that because he was just so kind of disgusted by the financial markets. Uh, he, he slowly came around and, and, and expanded his portfolio into other areas but um, I think it really says something that he's completely liquidated his portfolio, at least as of Jan- uh, June 30th, and only owns one stock, GEO. Now, GEO is not uh, a company that owns prisons. It's, a, it's actually a real, well, technically, I guess they kind of do. They're a real estate investment trust, and they only invest in prisons and psychiatric wards and things like that. So, I mean, I guess this what this means is Mike Burry's analysis is that we're all going to be thrown in prison or we're going to end up in the psych ward. And I, I tell you what, some of the stuff I've been reading and watching, I mean, it, it's, it's almost, you know, like it's hard to argue against some of that. Uh, I mean, we are living just in unbelievably crazy times.